Alright, what's up everybody? Welcome to Found Flicks. On this inning explain, we're looking at the thrilling climax of the new Halloween trilogy, Halloween Ends. Set four years after Michael's latest rampage, the killer has mysteriously vanished. Meanwhile, his old adversary, Lori, decides to liberate herself from rage and fear and embrace life. It all goes awry when a young man turns into the next Haddonfield boogeyman after a child is accidentally killed in his care. Well, here we are, the finale of the new Halloween trilogy and the end of the saga of Lori and Michael, right? Well, that's what the trailers told us over and over again, at least. Remember the kitchen scene? Of course you do. It even said in big old text, this is the end of their saga, specifically promised it. That's why what this movie really is comes across as quite a surprise for those that expected something more traditional, because Halloween Inn sidelines the old foes in favor of focusing on a new character, Corey's journey. It feels much less like Halloween Inn's and more like the rise of Corey. It's also more of a love story than anything else, with the horror and kills woke underused in this outing. There was a clear decision by David Gordon Green to do something different here, and inherently that isn't a bad thing. Sure, we've seen enough of Mikey going on rampages, but doing something different doesn't mean that it's good. This takes several big swings, and really none of them land, leaving us with a very baffling and underwhelming film. Regardless, I have a ton of stuff to dig into about the movie, because there is a lot of madness to dissect. So let's check out Halloween Ends, breaking down the story, including how evil has evolved over the past four years, looking at those extra confusing moments, as well as explaining the ending and what it means. The filmmakers slip in an easter egg right off the bat, using the same thought from the oft-maligned Halloween 3 season of The Witch. Perhaps the intent here was to inform us that things aren't going in an expected direction. Probably, as this was definitely a deliberate choice. Remember there wasn't any Michael in that one either, so don't get your hopes up, I guess. A young man, Corey, who we've never heard of before, is about to have his life change completely on Halloween night 2019, as in one year year after the events of Halloween 18 and Kills. He's been hired to babysit a little shit named Jeremy, who apparently since the prior year has been obsessed with Michael Myers, constantly in fear that he will return. He perhaps rather unwisely shows the kids John Carpenter's The Thing, which definitely won't help with his nightmares. He suggests that Corey is scared of the movie, but he scoffs that he's 21, nothing scares him. Jeremy keeps ripping on him for being ugly and a poor babysitter, and Corey loses his temper, telling him to be in bed in five minutes. In the kitchen, he fetches some chocolate milk and overhears a thud from another room. There's no sign of Jeremy, sending him on a search through the house. Jeremy calls for help from upstairs, sending Corey up into the attic. The boy quickly traps him inside as a joke, cackling that Michael is coming for you, he's gonna kill you. With the worst timing ever, his parents happen to come home, while Corey goes ape on the door. It busts open, knocking right into the kid, sending him plummeting all the way down to his death. His parents enter, and it does look pretty damning, them immediately accusing him of being responsible. We know it was an accident, of course, but but Haddonfield does not see it the same way. And as such, here we are seeing Corey's literal villain origin story. As it turns out, the town has been completely destroyed in many ways in the wake of Michael's murderous rampage. Lori dictates as she writes her memoir, yes, really, Haddonfield was peaceful until one night it was all lost. Pure evil turned dreams into nightmares. He was locked away into prison as she disappeared into her own. Then as she predicted, he escaped after 40 years and the town was forced to confront their man and a mask. The brutality ravaged the community, got her daughter killed, and then after all that, Michael simply vanished. It may sound impossible, she says, but the truth evolved into legend as people searched for motive and meaning, looking into the shadows for their boogeyman. There was a sort of spread of evil in the wake of 2018, causing an infection in the town, seeing that more murders not by Michael started occurring, as well as a lady randomly hanging herself. Like, wait, what the hell happened here? The entire town collapsed into this because of Michael? What in the world, seriously? Even 
stranger while the entire town has gone cuckoo, somehow Lori has completely moved on from all of her fear and paranoia. Just totally glossed over all that trauma off screen. 40 years worth, no big deal now. The last thing that we saw was her daughter being murdered, but nope, she's over it. It's cool, don't even worry about it. Now she's just fine and acting like a typical grandma, knitting and burning pumpkin pies. It's startling to see how different Lori is from the previous two films, as she has bought another house in town where she lives with Allison. A place to live with love and trust, not a trap or a place to hide. I would have at least liked to see this arc on screen. Going from where we left her to being at peace just feels very jarring. She continues, it's up to us whether we find our own resolve or whether we let him inside. I understand conceptually the idea is the evolution of fear over the course of the trilogy and that it makes sense that it would spread into the town but not to the extent being presented. It is pretty over the top. And I'm always like, if it's really that bad, then just move out of Haddonfield. It's not that hard, you know? <laughs> Golly. We reunite with Corey in the present day where he works at his dad's junkyard, accompanied by the omnipresent WURG, aka The Urge radio station. The DJ is rambling about the rampage from kills. How did one man get shot, stabbed, and get back up? The only explanation, he's more than a man, but a beast. I'm also not sure why the radio station is suddenly at the forefront of the story. It's almost in like every scene, uh, perhaps an homage to the fog, because I really have no idea why this was included so much. Things aren't so easy for poor Corey, we see. The town will not forget what happened. He learns this when encountering a gang of banned high school kids. They ask him to buy some booze, and when he refuses, they give him shit for the past, implying that he killed the kid outright and calling him a pedo as well for good measure. Corey loses it and clenches his fist, smashing the bottle in his hand. The kids get physical with him, and he's helped out by a surprising savior, Lori. Terry is glib to her as well. The psycho meets the freak show, a match made in heaven, he cackles. After they scatter, she even suggests to get some payback by slashing their tires. Wow, okay, this shit is starting to get ridiculous. If nothing else, these must be the most abrasive band nerds I've ever seen in my life. What the heck is that about? They actually act more like 50s greasers or something, especially Terry. It's just super goofy and out of place considering how important these characters end up being. Then there's a whole other side of the equation that Corey is being bullied by a bunch of kids, basically. They specifically say in the opening that he was 21 then, so he's maybe 24 now, and he's taking shit from these little goobers. I mean, come on, man. But the madness is only truly beginning as Lori takes Corey to Allison to get his hand patched up. Bafflingly, it appears to be love at first sight for the younger Strode, actually making this face when first setting eyes on the floppy-haired boy. Love is in the air as they banter about their jobs, and she's in need of his mechanical services. He knows exactly how to fix it, and offers to check it out tomorrow. After the confusing flirting continues, her telling a lame joke. Why can't a bike stand on its own? Because it's too tired. And Corey laughs his nuts off. Yeah, good one. Once more, I'm like, what is going on here? All this stuff that's happening is so bizarre to me. She practically throws herself at him, suggesting they go on a date, but he shyly rebuffs her. Even though she's smitten, Allison accuses Lori of setting her up. She thinks it's all for the best. You need to find someone to help you let go. You know, show grief your tits and say, let's go, she proclaims while squeezing pumpkin guts. Yes, I am confused as well. The tone of this movie is ultra bizarre. We then get a peek into Corey's home life that helps us presumably understand why he is so shy and withdrawn. His mom is annoyingly overbearing, demanding to know who it is that he's texting. When he doesn't answer, she punishes him. Boys who keep secrets don't get dessert. Oh no. When she leaves, speaking of secrets, his dad urges to not tell her about his present of a motorbike. Okay, so I get this is not the healthiest household, but it's really not that bad. Allie continues more or less stalking Corey and visits him under the guise of fixing her car, but plainly tells him 
that she's just here to see him. Jeez, keep it in your pants, lady. I have no idea why she's so obsessed with this guy. They present the same basic generational trauma thing, seeing Terry with his dad. He scolds the boy for not knowing how to change a tire and slaps him around. It's a whole classic thing, since his dad is a bully, that's what Terry ultimately becomes. Pretty standard stuff, yeah. Romance blooms elsewhere in Haddonfield, which is what we're here for, right? Romantic interludes at the grocery store. Hell yeah! Lori bumps into Frank, and they awkwardly flirt about him not eating enough vegetables, and that it is good to see his face. The sparks are flying, woo-wee! The subject turns to Allie and her new beau. Frank does remember him, saying that he's just a good kid that had a tough break. He's glad to know at least someone is looking out for him. Although he's not the only town pariah, as for some inexplicable reason, people now blame Lori for Michael's actions. A lady accosts her in the parking lot, along with her sister who was attacked and killed. She claims Lori provoked Michael and lays her sister's injuries on her as a result. This makes absolutely no sense. I guess the point is that that evil curse thing in the town has made people more hateful or something, because this is not even close to what happened whatsoever. Especially since we don't have the sibling angle in this timeline, there is no connection between Lori and Michael. The only reason he even made it to Lori's compound is because of Sartain. She didn't provoke him or anything like that whatsoever, just in case there's any confusion. The lovebirds next meet up at a costume party at Lindsay's bar. Her co-worker Deb gives her some shit for dating Corey, but Lindsay encourages she can be with whoever she wants to. Allison agrees, grinning, I know, and now I'm with him. You barely even know the guy. What the hell is going on here? Things only get stranger when they cut loose on the dance floor, including Corey spazzing out on the floor while she waves her arms wildly over him. Corey's brief moment of happiness is shattered when he encounters Jeremy's mom at the bar. She shuns him for being out here and having fun while her precious little Jeremy is dead. It's all your fault. That seems to be a running theme here. She can't get over her grief, crying that she wakes up every day and can't get past the pain. She declares that he did it on purpose and he is an evil person at his core. He runs outside and Allison attempts to comfort him. She understands what it's like having people look at you and think that they know you, but they really don't know you, you know? This must be why she's so entangled with him emotionally because she can relate to him in that sense. But it's not really one-to-one -one, as he clarifies how his stuff is different. People look at her as a survivor while he's a monster, a kid killer. She holds out her hands in support and he turns away, leaving her to sob on her own. Oh boy, emotional struggles. Let's hope these kids will figure it out. Love will find a way. You might be wondering about now, where the hell is Michael Myers? Well, he's just about to make his slightly less than triumphant debut, 40 minutes into the movie. The kids are back to harass Corey some more, Terry sarcastically saying that he's just here to make up and shake his hand. Corey declines the shake, which riles up the others. They get violent, and Corey pulls a knife, barking for them to get back. He recognizes what we noticed about Terry earlier. He's an asshole because his father treats him like one. It's contagious, right? Really hammering that concept home. This only further annoys Terry, and he grabs Corey, tossing him over the bridge. The others feel that he went too far, but Terry ain't taking the fall for this one. He didn't push nobody, the mook fell down there on his own. Down by the bridge, there's a homeless encampment, and someone drags Corey's body away. A man watches the whole thing as he disappears into a sewer drain. So now we know what Mikey has been up to for the last four years, chilling in the sewers and licking his wounds. It weirdly feels like he's been quite nerfed in this outing, which is at odds with the previous two movies that towed that line between him being man and something more. He was an unstoppable killing machine then, and now he is suddenly a a feeble old man that he would, you know, technically be. Just another odd choice to kind of backtrack in this aspect. It's also quite peculiar that he's just been down here this entire time without anyone ever finding him. You'd think they would keep looking for him, at least for a while, and considering it's a pretty small town, seems that it wouldn't be too difficult to track him down. Especially if the whole town is going to hell because of his impact. Just all very, very odd. Things only get more odd and more baffling, as we will see. Corey comes to in the sewers, and Mikey, hiding in a little cave, surprises him with a chokehold. He is just about to squeeze the life out of him until they lock out 
skies, seeing each other in the reflections. It seems that Mikey finds a connection in the boy, flashing through the stuff with Jeremy, and the killer lets him go. There's a lot of questions behind this moment too. It definitely seems that there is a connection between the two, and Michael bizarrely shows him sympathy here, which feels way out of character for him. Literally never seen that anytime in any of the series before. It's all about the eyes, as we know. There's lots of talk about seeing the devil in Michael's eyes throughout the series, and it stands to reason that Mikey recognizes this same thing in Corey's. Though their situations are substantially different, as Corey killing Jeremy was purely an accident, whereas little Michael straight up murdered his sister in cold blood, there's no question there. Pretty big difference, I have to say. And there's nothing implying that Corey was inherently evil. This is important to note because Corey is changed after locking eyes with Michael, almost feeling like the evil of the killer is infecting him, dragging him further down a dark path, which actually feels a lot like Christine. Perhaps Corey sharing the same name of Cunningham from that story was on purpose. Or maybe not. He gets his first fill of bloodlust as soon as leaving the sewer. The old guy that hangs around demands to know why he let him live. And since he did, can he go back in there and get him the mask? He needs it because he's Michael Myers. He pulls out a blade, and in the tussle, the old man is killed. Once more, this wasn't on purpose, purely in self-defense, as the guy attacked him in the first place. After this especially, he appears to be a changed man, running home to clean up and staring dead-eyed at his reflection, while his mom pounds on the door, crying about being worried about him. Lori hammers away on her memoirs, waxing about how people create their own stories and believe what they want to believe. She's hopeful that her experience will help others to heal. You have to ask, am I in control, or do the elements control me? It's our choice, life or death, suicide or cherry blossoms. Good lord, this sounds like an angsty teenager's diary not a seven-year-old lady. Deep, bro. She hears Corey's bike puttering up outside. She stares down at the window, seeing him peeking out from behind a bush. Yeah, totally normal thing to do. And of course, remember that Michael did the same thing before. He startles her for some reason and explains to Allie that he wants to apologize, begging her to just take a walk. Looks like Lori is growing suspicious of the boy, eyeing the pair as they saunter off. He appears to come clean, spilling that he killed someone. He puts out his hands as she did before, and she takes them, indicating that she's not going to leave him. He takes her to Jeremy's abandoned house and details what happened. They just wanted to have a good night and then it all went bad. Allie has heard all about it and even though it sounds crazy, when people would talk about it, it felt like she knew him, like she was looking for him. Then Lori brought them together. Okay, so it's like some kind of grand destiny for this to happen, the greatest love story of our times, I suppose. Lori pays a visit to the Cunningham household in search of answers, but his mom is ridiculous as always, groaning that the town turned on him when they should have helped him heal and blames her to a degree. Since her boogeyman disappeared, they needed a new one. Is that how it works? I did not know that. We must have one boogeyman at all times. Allie opens up about her position here. She does want to leave town, but is worried about leaving Lori on her own. Corey gushes that when he looks at her, he knows that he can tell her everything. He's not afraid of these people anymore, or afraid at all. If she tells him to burn it all down, then he will. They're interrupted by Doug, her cop ex-boyfriend, who complains that she was supposed to call him. They try to be polite and shoo him away, but he doesn't get the message. That is until Corey gets to his feet and gets right up in his face, causing Doug to back down. Ooh, getting a little more aggressive there already, Corey. After that, she agrees with this intimate. Let's burn it all to the ground. Him whispering in response, I'll light the match. Wow, annoying ex-boyfriend broke the camel's back, huh? Man, uh, burn it all down. All right. They ride through the night on his motorcycle. Things pretty much a full-fledged indie romance at this point. Halloween ends! Naturally, big man Doug follows after them in order to confront Corey. He lures him to the bridge where he discovers the homeless guy's body. Corey gets a jump on him from behind and Corey cackles, disappearing into the sewer. He enters Mikey's lair, still confident that he's going to kick Corey's ass. He flashes the light around the room and Corey gives 
gives him a big smile. Michael appears and grabs him, and Corey jumps in with some wallops from a flashlight. He holds Doug back, asking Michael for help. Teach me how to do it. He shouts to get up, which takes the old killer some noticeable effort. He retrieves a hidden knife and slices his throat. He stumbles closer and stabs him in the chest and begins to weirdly convulse. It's almost like killing recharges energy or something, because after this, he goes ham on Doug. He's back, sort of. He immediately goes to Allie, who is frightened by his appearance. She asks who did this, but he's more focused on his new pal. How does she get away? Did Michael let her live, or did she escape on her own? She informs him it was her mother that saved her. Lori pulls up just in time to see them heading upstairs for some naughty times. Her old nemesis is there too, behind a nearby tree, and she just misses him. Hmm, how did he get here? I wonder if Corey gave him a ride. I love the idea of Michael riding on the back of his bike. Ah, now that's true love. Lori lays out her increasing suspicions to Lindsay regarding Corey, and is certain about the whole eye thing as well. When she looked into Corey's eyes, they were just like Michael's. There's someone she wants her to meet, Jeremy's dad. Guess both his parents are just drunks hanging out around the bar separately for some reason. He too expresses a similar sentiment. The Corey he knew was definitely not capable of hurting anyone on purpose. But then when the trial started, his brain started spinning with all the wild theories. Years passed, and he saw how people reacted to him, which pissed him off, as it felt like they were taking his pain and despair and making it about them. Then yesterday, he happened to see Corey on the road and decided he was going to say something to prove his wife wrong and potentially find a way to forgive the kid. Well, hey, at least someone in town is trying to move on from their trauma. But then when he came up, Roger felt something was off. He wasn't that same kid anymore. At least not in the eyes. Yeah, you get the pictures yet about the freaking eyeballs? He still felt that he got his answer. The kid that mowed his lawn all those years ago didn't kill his son, but the guy that he saw yesterday was down a dark path. He considers, did the town do this to him after the accident or was it always there deep inside? Hmm, that's a big question right over and over and over with the same thing. Oh, sorry. We move on to the doctor who comes home with a special visitor, Deb. And now we know how she got her new promotion by sleeping with the boss. Classic. She's impressed with his rich house and asks to go freshen up. While she does so, he goes around setting the mood. She gets the shower going, hearing a thud along with a scream from the doc. She finds him being violently murdered by Corey, donned in a scarecrow mask. She is able to make it inside and lock the door, calling the police. Yet Corey has a new sidekick. That's right, Michael and him are teaming up. Isn't that exactly what you wanted to have happen in this movie? Of course it is. He appears from the shadow and stabs her sliding across the entire floor until pinning her to the wall. Hmm, I guess uh, superpower Michael is back after all, at least for the moment. He was just hobbling around after a few punches earlier. No consistency there whatsoever. In an homage to his kill from 40 years ago, Mikey stabs her into the wall and leaves her hanging there as her body goes lifeless. And it's right back to our romance movie where the synthwave pops on, riding their motorcycle and everything. She's fingering his lips and rubbing his hair. The two are so very in love after four days of knowing each other. They drive out to the radio station for a nice romantic view of the town. This time, he opens up to her about how he used to come up here after the accident. He would look up at the tower and felt that it was summoning him to his old life to be happy again. Somehow, things could go back to the way they were before everything changed. He wants to just get away from the town, but doesn't want to go alone. He then randomly jumps off the side of the building, which she finds charming and amusing. Willie the DJ guy comes out to see what all the hubbub is about, and he, just like everybody else, goes right into reaming them about their past, even claiming that Lori teased a man with brain damage, and that's what caused him to snap which is so far off base from reality, it's hard to even fathom. How in the world did the public opinion of what happened change so drastically in four years? It makes absolutely no sense. He warns to move along before he kicks their asses, and this encounter sends Allie over the line, agreeing to leave town with him for good. He returns home to his mother more frantic than ever, groaning that she can smell Allie on him, and screams for him to leave her house immediately and smack some good. She gets weirdly apologetic and tries to give him kisses on the lips, which he denies. She leaves in a huff, and his dad pipes up with my favorite line in the entire movie, telling him lifelessly, I hope you find love. 
I hope you find love. Oh, is that what this is? This total nightmare going on? And he literally doesn't even do or say anything about how his wife was just smacking his kid around. I mean, what the fuck? That's actually hilarious. On Halloween morning, Corey is awoken by Lori. She's there to wax philosophic on that main idea of the movie some more. The two kinds of evil. One that exists as an external force that threatens the well-being of a tribe. Survival depends on understanding and awareness, the fear of a physical threat to our daily lives. Then there's the other kind, inside of us, like a sickness or infection. That kind is more dangerous because we may not even know that we're infected. He asks her genuinely if he's a bad person and she laughs. Are you? Well, she acknowledges we're definitely both fucked. She offers to help him, but then it becomes more about Allison, declaring that he's not equipped for a relationship with her and to stay away. He shrieks correctly that she's the one that invited him in the first place. She should take the blame. He ultimately declares if he can't have her, no one can. Allison doesn't need her anymore. She has him now. He tells her to give in, surrender to that feeling that she had the first time she looked in Michael's eyes, which is presumably what he's done, rather than being afraid, he embraced the evil, leading to that infection version of it starting to seep into his very being. He turns back and she's gone. Or was she really ever there in the first place? The answer I feel is definitely not. Lori here provides him the exact rationalization to continue onto his murderous path. In order to be with Allie, Lori must die, as she has now become a threat herself. And this is what launches Corey into his final rampage, first setting up a rendezvous with Allie before he goes to take care of some unfinished business. He first needs something to instill proper fear in his victims and descends upon the old man Myers holed up in the sewer. He does at least put up some kind of a fight, but Corey is easily victorious, dismissing Michael as merely a man in a Halloween mask. I remember watching this moment in complete disbelief because it's probably the most disrespectful to Michael in the entire franchise. This kid just shows up and slaps him around and steals his mask? I don't think so. It makes him look like a big old bitch. Though Mikey isn't totally down and out, doing his trademark rise into action. He's got some business of his own now that Corey has sullied their newfound friendship. Corey's next target is fairly obvious, the bad bandmates that essentially led him down this path. He finds them back at the gas station and carves Psycho into Terry's dad's car, sending them into hot pursuit. At Lori's house, things spill over between the girls, as Allie didn't tell her that she'd be leaving. Lori tries to iterate that Corey is capable of real harm, but Allie thinks it's all part of her trauma. Is it suspicion or paranoia? You went to his family's house, implying that she's stalking him, despite Allison's clear pursuit of Corey in the first place. Lori points out the eye thing, saying that she's just trying to protect her. But Allison argues she doesn't need her protection, she's just obsessed with death, and won't be satisfied until everyone is as miserable as she is. She goes even further, thanks to the hysteria she caused, her friends and her parents are dead. I guess even Allison is susceptible to the infecting evil of the town. Her grandma never did anything but protect her. At the junkyard, the time of retribution is at hand for the band geeks from hell. They don't find Corey, but they do find his bike, and Terry decides to mess it up good. But Billy isn't doing his duty with the chain, and finds out why. Uh, he's dead. A tow truck roars to life and the girls bolt. Margot does make it over the gate but winds up getting slammed by the truck and pinned underneath. Stacy rushes to her side but it's to no avail as Corey gets out of the truck taking a wrench to her head. Terry tells Ronald about what's going on and he's more than happy to arm him up but tells him to stay behind. Ronald gets to the still trapped Margot and is in disbelief when seeing that his son is the killer. He still attempts to save him trying to stop Terry but winds up getting shot right through the head. No, oh, good shot though kid. It's Terry's turn for vengeance next getting a blow torch to the face and then it's finally the 
the end from Argo getting smashed through on the fence. Corey returns home once more, now seen through the POV we've seen before with Michael. He takes a knife from the drawer and takes out his mom. Meanwhile, Willie is still rambling about Michael. Seriously, do they have any other DJs or is it just this guy 24-7? He gets a call shaming him for exploiting the killings, even invoking Nietzsche's quote of staring into the abyss. But Willie is undeterred, putting on another record. I guess since Willie gave him shit earlier, Corey descends upon the station and gives him the most brutal kill by a long shot, smashing his head on the record player, then cutting out his tongue with scissors. Yeesh. Ellie arrives to the diner, waiting for her bow to arrive, but the time grows late. Lori, on her own, shuts off the lights, sulking through the now empty house. She walks to her office, pulling out a gun from a safe and calls 911, reporting a suicide. Once more, I'm like, what the hell is happening here? You can't really be going in this direction, right? It's yet another trick set up for Corey's benefit. She fires upon the pumpkin and reveals herself pointing the gun at him. You really think I'd kill myself? Then what was the point of that scene? She shoots him a few times, sending him tumbling down the stairs. She chases him down, groaning that she tried to have compassion and mercy. She empties the rounds and wonders, what's the point? And then goes him. He came here to kill me, so just do it. Corey goes for the knife, hearing Ollie's rumbling muffler approaching. He changes tactics, chuckling insanely to himself. Lori tells him we all know the truth about each other eventually, and chides him again. You really think Allison would want to be with you? He repeats, if I can't have her, and stabs himself in the neck, which really doesn't make sense. I mean, Allison is still alive. That would be the whole, if I can't have her, no one else can, you know what I mean? She opens the door, and the sight does look like Lori killed Corey. She should know better, but you know, I guess not. She loses her shit, and decides to leave once and for all. Yeah, there's another thread to be tended with. Remember this was supposed to be Lori and Michael's big thing? It wasn't, but with 10 minutes left, it's time to get some action. Michael reclaims his mask and goes for the blade, but Corey isn't done yet. He attempts to stop Michael, who responds by choking him out and snapping his neck. Well, so much for the next generation of evil. That bitch is dead. Michael is the ultimate evil, is the point, I guess. Allie gets a heavy dose of symbolism while trying to drive away from her problems. The Urge Tower now in flames. That possible reset of Corey's life is no more. He's made his choice, and there's no going back now. She gets a call from Frank regarding Lori's supposed suicide, sending her back to her G-Maws. Michael stalks Lori through the house, and they throw down in the kitchen. They toss each other around for a while, but it's a fairly disappointing showdown. They're like, here you go, they're getting into it now. Are you satisfied? Uh, no, not exactly. Lori manages to stab through his hand, pinning him onto the table. She gets him through the other hand, hammering it into place with a pan. For his legs, she knocks the fridge right on top of him. But ever tenacious Mikey keeps flailing with his one free limb. Ugh, get, get over here. I'm gonna kick you. Kick you so good. She removes his mask, growling, I've run from you. I've chased you. Tried to contain you. Even forgive you. She thought, perhaps, he was truly the boogeyman. No, he's just a man about to stop breathing. He gets a hand loose, going for her throat, his new favorite move apparently. He just keeps doing that over and over. Her breath gets ragged, and she shrieks for him to do it, flashing back through their previous misadventures. Nothing better than recap footage to really enhance a moment, huh? Yeah. In order to make it seem like it has more meaning, you're like, remember that? Remember those other movies? Yeah. I do. Allie arrives just in time to save the day, stabbing his arm and snapping it painfully. Just to make extra sure the dude is dead, they slit his wrist and, well, that's the end of Big Bad Michael Myers. No super killing machine, just an old man in a mask. In a grandiose display designed to help the town to really start to heal and put the killer behind them, they load up his body and a procession of town folk follow after. At the junkyard, the people carry Michael's body down the line to a massive thrasher. Allie clicks it to life, and Lori pushes his body into the machine that makes quick work of it, crushing his bones into oblivion within seconds. Well, he's definitely not coming back from that one. Unless... No. 
No way. You'd just be like a pile of goop with a knife. Lori concludes her book. His body was destroyed in a midnight procession. No tombstone, no memorial. Now that he's been put to bed, the story will fade with time. Allie does admit that she was right about Corey all along. She knows he killed all those people. Uh, yeah, not really much of a question there, lady. And now Allie can finally move on with her life and no longer worry about Lori. She continues, the events in the town created so much violence and bloodshed has finally been resolved. New beginnings lay ahead. Fear moves through us and we decide when to surrender or not. She said goodbye to her boogeyman. But the truth is, evil doesn't die, it changes shape. Nice one, because that's what the Michael Myers used to be called the shape. Yep, 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 yep. She gets a ring at the door, and it's Frank here to check on her. He joins her on the steps, hearing the birds cheerily chirp. We go through the house, now empty, but at peace. And it looks like she won't be so alone after all. Old people love hooray! That brings us to the conclusion of this inning explained for Halloween ends. And don't forget, before we go, you can send me requests for any movies or TV shows you'd like to see me explain by sending them my way on any of my social media accounts at Foundflix. What did you guys think of Halloween ends and its ending? Was it a satisfying conclusion to you? which is your favorite of the trilogy. Let me know your thoughts down in the comments below. Make sure to like, subscribe, and follow. Thanks for watching Found Flicks. See you next time.